This is the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, Episode 30. You're listening to the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, the number one resource for running a profitable home recording studio. Now your hosts, Brian Hood and Chris Graham. Welcome back to another episode of the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. I am your host, Brian Hood, and I'm with my co-host here, Mr. Christopher J. Graham. Hey, Chris. Hi. I believe Chris and I have hit up against a roadblock here, and that is <laughs> podcast ideas. <laughs> we, uh, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel now, so if there's something you want to hear more about, something you're struggling with, or something you want us to talk about, just email us, podcast at the sixfigurehomestudio.com with your podcast ideas. And we would love to hear them because uh, other than interviewing guests, which is what we plan to do more of, we're running out of stuff to talk about. <laughs> we're only 30 episodes in. That's not a good sign. We've got like 30, 40 ideas written down. We just don't love a considerable number of them. We have tons of ideas, but none of them are things that we're excited about talking about. So, Except for today's episode. That's true. Today's episode is actually a good topic. And this is one we've heard a lot about in the past. We've seen some conversation about it and one that we haven't really talked about before. I don't think we've really touched on this before. I don't think we have at all. This is the topic of negotiation. Negotiation. So when it comes to negotiating things, if you have a studio, at some point you will come up against a negotiation, whether you believe you are or not. There are a lot of times when you don't even know you're negotiating. And so today we want to give you some guidelines based off of a book. This is a book that Chris is a huge fan of. And what's the name of the book, Chris? It's a book called Secrets of Power Negotiating by Roger Dawson. Great. So this is the book that we're going to be talking about today. Chris is the expert in this stuff. The extent of my negotiation is, this is not a negotiation. That's the (laughs) extent of my negotiations. So Chris has a little bit more knowledge about this. I didn't read this book. This is Chris's book. So I'm just going to add my two cents as we go down this outline from this book. But I think there's a lot, just from what we talked about in the pre-discussion today before we started recording, I think there's a lot we can take out of the topics inside this book. And I think a lot of this translates to recording studios. Yeah. And I didn't realize, you know, I thought I wasn't negotiating. I thought that, hey, this is not a negotiation. I thought that was me not negotiating, but that is actually one of the tactics we're going to talk about today. And we're going to talk about ethical forms of negotiation. And we're also going to talk about unethical forms of negotiation. So Chris, do you want to start this thing off here? Yeah, absolutely. So this is weird that I'm talking about negotiating and then I'm into the subject of negotiating because I always was under the impression that negotiating was for assholes and that only assholes were good at it. And this book was really eye-opening to me. I only read it for one reason and it's because, you know, 10 years ago or so I finished 4-Hour Workweek and at the back of 4-Hour Workweek was a list of recommended books this was one of the first ones listed. And it's a great book because as a business owner, you're constantly negotiating. You're coming up with deals, you're partnering, you're figuring out what you will get if you do something for someone else and what they will get if they do something for you. Happens all the time. Now, here's the fun thing about negotiating is this is not going to be an episode, nor is the book about this, Secrets of Power Negotiating. It's not about win-lose situations. It's not about creating a win for yourself and a lose for the other person. This is the most important concept in the book, and it blew my mind. His philosophy, and now mine for a number of years now, is when you negotiate, your goal, first and foremost, is to get a win for the other party. And that's weird, right? You are negotiating against the person, but you're actively attempting to get them what they want. Now, here's the reason for that. It's twofold. One... If you can get the other person what they want, if you can figure out what it is that they want and find a way to get it for them, you're probably going to get what you want too. This goes back to that Zig Ziglar quote, in order to get everything you want out of life, you help everyone else get what they want. It's kind of on the same lines as that. Exactly. So one of the most important things he talks about in this book is listening and asking questions. Your first move shouldn't be to go in and be like, oh yeah, I'll give you $5 for this thing, da 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 Your first move should be to ask questions and get to know the person you're negotiating with so that you can learn what they consider a win. And here's the thing. Every time I've been in a negotiation, I've assumed I thought I knew what a win was for the other person, and I'm wrong 95% of the time. Always it's like, oh, I didn't realize you were interested in that, or I didn't know that you also wanted that. And it's a, a really, really, really important skill. Now, if I haven't convinced you already that this is an episode you should finish listening to and that this is a skill you should possess, 
Roger Dawson, the author of this book, goes into uh, something that I found fascinating. He said, you will never make more money per hour than you will negotiating. It's the highest dollar activity you can possibly do on a per hour basis. So case in point, you walk into a car dealership and you use a negotiating gambit is what he calls them. It's a move. And suddenly you got $500 off your car because you know a little bit about negotiating. It took you three seconds to get $500. You just made whatever is 20 times $500 per hour. 10000 $10,000 per hour with a three-second sentence. And that's incredible. So these are skills, man. I really feel like in our school system, it's you know reading, writing, and arithmetic. Why on earth aren't we teaching kids how to negotiate? They'll definitely use that in the real world. They definitely won't use calculus. And also, when we start talking about the unethical forms of negotiation, knowing those allows you to defend yourself against that type of stuff. So important. Um, When I read the book, there's a section on unethical gambits, what you can do to negotiate unethically and how to defend yourself from it. And I didn't know about any of these gambits. And as I read it, it was really painful because I saw all the situations in my life, particularly with one guy I was really close with who took advantage of me and literally used every single unethical gambit in this book against me successfully. Yeah. And so I love this book because I feel like it's this life skill we should all have. We should all have a basic knowledge of negotiation and you don't have to accept that, oh, I'm going to be an asshole and I'm going to win and they're going to lose. That's not good negotiation. I think when most people hear the word negotiation, I think they just think of shows like Pawn Stars or those shows where they're always doing this hard fist pounding negotiation tactics where it's like this person loses, but I win. You know, that's that's what's on people's minds when they hear the word negotiation. And that's really not the case, especially when we get into today's episode. Yeah. You could call this book Secrets of Power Negotiating. You could call it Negotiation for Nice Guys. And I totally ascribe to it. I love it. I mentioned earlier, there's two reasons that you go for win-win in every negotiation. One is if you can figure out what the other party wants and you can help them get it, then you have a really good chance of getting what you want to. Number two, and I think this is huge. This goes back to a book we've talked about on the podcast before, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which also sounds like a book for assholes, but is actually about how to be a nice, compassionate person is that when you develop a reputation for getting other people wins, for being the nice negotiator, you're going to get a lot more deals that come across your plate. You're going to get a lot more opportunities. You're going to feel a lot better about yourself. And most importantly, you're not going to have people out there looking to get you back because you won and they lost at one point. I never want that to be my life of, hey, I tricked somebody and they're going to come back and get me later or they're going to tell somebody just be careful. He's slimy. Yep. This all goes back to guarding your reputation and you can call it whatever you want, but we're all personal brands. Our name is, despite whether or not you go by a studio name or not, your personal name, your personal brand will dictate how successful you are in your career. And if you damage that brand, you will very quickly lose any chance of a successful career in audio. Absolutely. So this is cathartic for me because I love this stuff, but I was always afraid of it you know, growing up and even through high school, even through college, you know, I'd hear, you know, oh, we're going to negotiation and immediately we'd just be like, oh, capitalists, evil movie villains, you know, like that's what I always thought about it. And my position is totally the opposite now where I'm trying to find a way to create a win. And to great success, when I bought my first house, it was like uh, $22,000 off asking price. So like these are effective things that can help you in your life, can help you get better deals, and most importantly, can make sure that at the end of the day, that whoever you've made a deal with, that they're still happy. If you convince a band to record with you, and you cut them a bad deal, and then you spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours with them, it's miserable. Nobody wants to do that for a living. So we're going to dive into some negotiation gambits. Can you define what a gambit is? Because that's terminology that I guess is used in this book that I haven't really heard used when talking about negotiation. Yeah. So a gambit is a certain move, just like uh, in karate, you know, roundhouse kick. That's a gambit. I can do sidekick. I can do neck chop. Obviously, I don't know karate, (laughs) but like there's all these different things where you can be like, what should I do next? I will do a neck chop. Ah, Then I will do a belly button punch. These are different gambits and you can use these when you're being the nice guy and you're trying to get somebody else a win so that you can get a win for yourself too. All right, let's talk about a couple of these gambits. So first gambit, 
is you never ever want to negotiate against yourself and you always want to try to get the person you're negotiating with to negotiate against themselves. So what does that mean? What that means is, I will demonstrate this, Gambit. You are speaking into a Shure SM7B. That is correct. Large diaphragm condenser mic. Just kidding. Dynamic mic. Calm down, everybody. Calm down. I say, hey, how much would you sell me that SM7B for? And Brian says, $150. Hmm. I don't know if I want it that much. Could you do any better than that? Uh, I could do as low as $125. Boom. Now, that's really important what just happened there is I haven't thrown out a number yet. Brian threw out the first number, which was good negotiating on my part. And then I asked Brian to negotiate against himself by lowering his price without me giving him another price. Right. You just got $25 off the price for just asking one question. Yeah. And that took me, it was one question. It's a second, two seconds and 25 bucks. Yeah. That's a lot of money per hour. But I got Brian to negotiate against himself by lowering his price without us going back and forth. Typically, you know, it'd be, he'd say 150, I'd say 100, then he'd say 140 and I'd say 110. And then we would eventually land at 125 in the middle. Let's now position this in the realm of a recording studio here. Yeah. Because this can go the opposite way. I've seen studio owners who negotiate against themselves. And this is how the situation would go if you're negotiating against yourself, which you never want to do. If a band comes to me and asks how much I charge for mixing, and I give them a price and they say, oh, I'm sorry, man, we can't afford this. If I throw out a random lower number, I've just negotiated against myself. Yeah. They just asked for my price. They said they couldn't afford it. And then I just offer them a lower price. That is called negotiating against yourself and you should never do it. The correct reply in this scenario is to ask for them to give you a number. What can you afford? What is your budget? That would be the proper way to do it. So when Chris asked me for this microphone price, and I said $150, which is already stupid low for this microphone anyways. I would never sell this mic for $150. And he says he can't afford that. Or he says, is that the best you can do? At that point, I should say, well, what are you looking to pay for an SM7B? You know, you're trying to get them to give you a number. So then you can start maybe meeting in the middle somewhere. So that's a super important concept. If someone tells you they can't afford you or someone says they're gonna, they can't work with you at that rate, never throw out a lower number, never negotiate against yourself. Just ask them what their budget is. Yeah. That's great advice. A lot of times negotiation is a contest to see who can throw out the least amount of numbers. It's true. And often what will happen, and we'll explain this more with some of these gambits, is you'll use one of these moves, then the person will lower their price. There's no back and forth yet. You've got them to lower their price, maybe even twice before you've actually started talking about how much you're willing to spend. So the next gambit we're going to talk about is ask for more. You should always according to this book, ask for more than you think you could get. Now, that's a terrifying prospect for most home studio owners because they don't want to lose the deal. That's the big thing. You don't want them to be scared away. So how do you get around that? Well, that's a great question. Obviously, you know, if somebody wants to record one song with you and you typically charge $500, you might want to throw out something like, ah, you know, somewhere, uh, you know, around $600 or something like that. Let me add to that because this is something I've noticed in my own career is if you never have the balls to ask for more, you'll be stuck at the same rates for the rest of your life. So if you ever want to start increasing your rates, you have to, at some point, ask for more money. And to me, that time comes whenever your schedule is starting to get booked up. This is getting kind of into the pricing strategy territory, which I'm not trying to get into right now. But if your schedule starts to book up, that's when you start to have to ask for more money. And a lot of that comes with having the safety of a full schedule ahead of you where you really don't care whether you get the project or not. Yeah, you have to be comfortable with losing the project. Most people that are bad negotiators aren't comfortable with walking away with nothing. Yeah, that's true. If you want to win, you have to be comfortable with no. And so funny story, uh, when I first asked my wife out, I used to be terrified of asking a girl out and getting rejected. What guy hasn't been at some point? Yeah, the first time I asked my wife out, I was okay with her saying no. And as a result, I was so much more confident that she said yes. And thank God, because I've knocked her up three times. <laughs> <laughs> after after you got married. We're happily married. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I want to add to this in the in the recording studio world when this would make sense. I already kind of talked about it before, but let me also state something. On my website, when you fill out my contact form, it has a field in there asking for budget. And so when they give me their budget, this is a chance for you to ask for more. And I do this all the time. Someone gives me a budget that's well below what I would charge, I'll ask for more. And I'm okay with if I lose the project. 
if you were getting every single project that you sent a price out for, you are massively undercutting yourself. So you have to be okay with rejection. It's hard for some personalities to deal with rejection, but you have to be okay with rejection. And part of that is being willing to ask for more. I'd say about one in four projects, I actually win. That's interesting. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are shocked by that. I would have been 10 years ago, 15 years ago, would have thought, oh my gosh, you're a failure if you're only closing one out of four. You have to close all of them. But you can't be good at business unless you're comfortable with the no. You have to be able to, to walk away and say, oh, it didn't work out. No big deal. I learned something. I'll take that home with me. Maybe I'm not worth as much as that highball offer that I throw out. So this next gambit is never say yes to the first offer. Let's put this in the context of buying a piece of gear. Because we all buy gear at some point. We're all gear sluts on the inside a little bit. Yeah, for better or worse. <laughs> so let's say I wanted to sell a pair of 414 AKG microphones, which incidentally I sort of do want to sell. Let's say I'm going to try to sell them to Brian. Yeah. And I would say, hey, Brian, I got a pair of 414s. Uh, you want to buy them? I would say, how much you want for them? I'd say, I don't know, man. How much do you think they're worth? So I'm trying to get him to come at me first with a number. Okay, I'll give you $1,200. Now, here's the thing. If I say yes, I just lost. Because I don't know how much Brian is willing to pay. I just said, if I just say yes, then it's over. So my first response should be no, or it should be a counteroffer. So if I'm really vicious, I'll say, ah, I feel like that's probably not enough. I didn't throw out a number yet. So then Brian's going to say, what about 1400 Brian just negotiating against himself. Yep. And because I didn't say yes to the first offer he made, I just made $200 in a couple of seconds. That's true. So this is whenever you're selling something in this situation, you're getting them to A, negotiate against himself and B, you're not taking the first offer that you get. Exactly. Now watch this. Tell you what, I could do 1500 No. Boom. That moment is magical. Now I've just tried to go from 14 to 15 but Brian said no means he's not willing to pay $1,500 for it. You found the ceiling for that, what he's willing to pay. I found the ceiling, or I think I did. So then if I'm really vicious, I'll say, well, what about uh, $1,450? Sure, man, that sounds fucking fantastic. I'll buy your gear slut mics from you. Awesome, fantastic, because I almost never use them. So (laughs) that 50 bucks that I made in a few seconds is also way more money than you can make per hour as an audio engineer. Yep. One more thing is, if you had these listed for $1,500, the same deal applies. If someone were to offer you 1200 you would never say yes to the first offer with that. If like, Even if they're not negotiating against themselves, even if they send you an offer, you never say yes to that first offer for that piece of gear you're selling. Yeah. So this is an amazing tool of just recognizing that you're looking for no. You turn down the first offer always. You attempt to not make the first offer always. And you're looking for no. You're actually trying to get rejected when you negotiate well so that you can figure out in the book, he calls this bracketing. You're trying to bracket, well, what is the highest he's willing to pay? And what is the lowest I am willing to sell it for? That's the bracket of the actual negotiation. And until you can establish that, and you have to get a no from the other party before you can establish, okay, it's somewhere between here and here. I'm willing to sell it for as little as $1,300, but how much is Brian willing to pay? As much as $1,450. So the bracket is $150 there. So this is super interesting and not saying yes to the first offer is the first step to figuring out what that bracket is. It's kind of amazing in American culture how little we negotiate. Yeah. You see this in a lot of other cultures where they'll haggle all day long. But in America, we seem to be scared to do it or we just don't even know to do it. It's crazy how often I see this kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, so fun story with that. Before I owned my first house, I was at a coffee shop and there was this guy who was a pastor of a local church, Scottish guy, met him and talked about how we were shopping for a house. And he said something that changed my life. He said, my father always told me when you're trying to buy a house, if you're not embarrassed by how much you offered, you offered too much. That was back and forth between a surprisingly good accent and then a horribly (laughs) done accent. You went back and forth there. Anyways, I went back and forth. That wasn't my best work. Anyways, the guy changed my life because I was like, oh my gosh, yes, I will be embarrassed by how much I offer. And I ended up getting huge amounts off my house because it was a buyer's market. It was fall of 2008 for you uh, finance nerds out there. Best possible time ever to buy a house slash worst possible time to own a house ever. Let's go on to the next gambit here. Yeah. So let's say me and Brian, Brian and I, excuse me, are talking about doing a project together. He's going to record and I have a song I'd like to record. So I would say, hey, Brian, 
pay attention here. This is going to be a real subtle gambit. How much would you charge me to record this song that I have written about my wife? Uh, $1,000 a song. Did you catch it? That was the gambit. But it's also followed by silence, right? Dead silence. And the first person that breaks the silence is the one that loses in this situation. Bingo. So this is called the flinch. The flinch is very powerful because, as we stated earlier, you're trying to get the other person to negotiate against themselves. And when you go, when you're doing that flinch, the hope is that they're like, oh, dang, I totally, I'm not even close to the bracket. And then Brian would probably throw out a, actually, how about 750? Yeah, this basically just spurs them to, to negotiate, negotiate against themselves. Exactly. So it's an amazing tactic, especially if you mean it, which I always try to. I always feel weird faking the flinch. Faking the flinch would be the borderline unethical negotiation. Exactly. So, but if it would make you flinch, do it openly. And that's a, a really impressive way, I think, it's impressive that it works, that you can get a cheaper price in many cases. And also in the studio world, if you ask for someone's budget, especially in an in-person conversation or on the phone, they give you their budget and you do, hmm, and then awkward silence after that, then that's a very powerful way to see really what their budget could be. Exactly. I, I can't tell you how many times <laughs> I've had someone send me just the, the most lowball budget. I'll quote them twice the price of what their budget was and they'll still work with me. Yeah. So I, I don't really, you know, the budget thing is kind of one of those things you use as a negotiation tactic. It's not necessarily set in stone what they can afford. Yeah. This next gambit, this next idea in negotiation is avoiding confrontation. What do you mean by that? You shouldn't be an asshole. You shouldn't get them riled up. You shouldn't get them angry. It shouldn't be a pissing contest. You should be nice. You should be civil. You should be professional. Yeah, because at the end of the day, if they can't afford to work with you or they can't afford to pay the price that you want, don't try to squeeze every cent out of them and don't try to be, make them feel ashamed because they can't afford you. You have to be willing to keep the relationship intact and not have to physically fight them over it. Yeah, well, and there's a component there. If, even if you lose the sale, if they walk away with a good taste in their mouth and they think, man, I really wish we could afford to work with Brian, that's good for business. When they're telling people, man, I wish we, you know, we're recording a new song. We wanted to work with Brian Hood. Man, I wish we could have. That's free marketing. That's amazing. That's really, really cool. And it also lets people know that you're not cheap. So this is good stuff, man. So avoid confrontation. Now, here's a fun one. This one, next one is reluctance. So let's say that you were thinking that you needed a new electric guitar for your studio that you need a nice electric guitar that your clients can use that's set up properly, that's got great pickups, that's got nice action. And so you walk into a guitar shop. It sounds like my PRS with Evertune Bridge and uh, Bare Knuckle Aftermath pickups. Oh, there you go. Oh, man. Gear sled, gear sled, gear sled. Yeah, I'm going to keep going with it. It's my baby. It's hanging on the wall right now. That's awesome. So you walk into the guitar center or the shop depot and you see a blue guitar hanging on the wall and it's the model you want but blue isn't your favorite color you should act reluctant with the sales associate if you don't want a blue guitar if you'd prefer a red guitar which i would every time i should let the sales associate know and i would say something like man i don't know i'm not a big fan of blue do you have any reds no oh, man i really wanted a red guitar well how much would you do for the blue one see what just happened there yeah yeah super powerful so I have taken my own reluctance, which is that I don't want a blue guitar. Seriously, I really don't. I would want a red guitar, which I seriously really would. But you're using that as a negotiation tactic to say, well, if I can't have a blue guitar or a red guitar, then what can you do for me? Yeah, the blue should be cheaper if I don't really want it. Yeah. And that's super effective, man. I used to use that in guitar shops all the time back in the day when I was touring. Another way this works is if you're contacting someone on Craigslist for a piece of gear that you really, really want. Um, or a piece of gear that you would like to have uh, and you're asking some questions about it and there's something about it that you can have that reluctance with it. Oh, it doesn't come with this. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Do you not have the original box for that? Hmm. You know, that kind of thing. Like that can be something that you can use as a negotiation tactic. Again, unless you are genuinely wanting that thing, I would avoid this gambit because that's where you get into borderline unethical 
negotiation land where you're just using some BS excuse in an effort to try to get the price down? I don't lie when I use the reluctance one. And it's really not hard to find something that you're not jacked about when you're buying something, especially if it's used, especially if you're like, ah, uh, there's a dent in the hood. I don't know. Let's move on to the next gamut now. What is that? Yeah. So the, the next gamut is trade-offs. Anytime you're negotiating with somebody, and man, this is freaking policy over here at Chris Graham Mastering when, when we're doing mixing services for people, is that when we throw out an offer, any adjustment to that price is a trade-off. It's either slower turnaround time, maybe doing stems instead of individual tracks, maybe not doing editing, letting the client do it themselves. If someone's asking for a cheaper price, there is always a trade-off. And that's important because here's, and this is intense, I'm kind of like, I'm going to contradict myself a little bit here. The important thing to understand when you're negotiating is that when you throw out a price, if you go down from that price, and again, some people will think I'm crazy. This is pretty much, this is the standard and has been for thousands of years. But if Brian says, hey, how much will you sell me that microphone for? And I say $1,000. The second that I go down on my price, that I lower my price, I'm admitting that I was lying about how much I'd sell the microphone for. That's sketchy. Now, when you go into you know any market or any used car lot or anything in the world, price is sort of elastic. But in my opinion, as soon as you throw out a number and then you accept a lower number, you're being a little bit dishonest. And so from my standpoint, I will never throw out a number and then throw out a lower number because it makes me a liar. So take it or leave it here. I really think this is a great philosophy to have. But this is not the norm in a negotiation. Most people will lower a number at some point. My thing, and this is what Roger Dawson says, is there should always be a trade-off. If somebody offers me $1,000 to do a, a specific thing for them, and then I say, eh, how about 900 Then they should, could say, eh, well, we could do 900 but we would need a little bit longer to deliver. Yeah. Or like if you're buying something on Craigslist and you negotiate the price down, but they say, but you know, if I go down this low, you're going to have to come pick it up. I can't deliver it. That kind of trade-off is, it's a trade-off on price, but they're also getting something else out of it. So it's kind of an equal trade. And you'll see this a lot more, you know, we're giving really basic, simple examples here, but when you get into more complex negotiation, especially something in real estate, this kind of shit gets crazy because you have so many different areas at play. There's so many different areas of negotiation, so many different little points of negotiation, not just the price, but just tons of other little things. And trade-offs are very common, especially in real estate. Yeah. So my advice to you guys, and I think pretty much most of us can take this home, it's going to apply to most of the people listening, is when you're going back and forth with a client and trying to come to a, an agreement on price, I would highly encourage you to only adjust your price when there's a trade-off that comes into play. If you don't, then in my experience, then the entire project becomes a negotiation. The entire project becomes them asking for one more thing. Can we record one more song? Can we do three more tracks? Can you do a little bit more than you agreed to? You have to give some sort of reason why you're willing to go down on price. And you can call it a trade-off, but you have to have a reason for it. Yes. So if you do go down on price in order to match their budget, what can you do to trade off? What are some examples of things you could do to trade off? Yeah. Uh, slower turnaround time, less songs. You could say, hey, we can do that, but we're not going to be able to do live drums. That's true. Yeah. We have to do program drums or electronic drums. Yeah. Or, hey, we could do that, but you're going to have to let me play the bass because your bass player, while he's a cool guy, can't keep time. And it, half the price is me editing the bass. So yeah, there's a lot of things you can do to say, well, we could do this, but it wouldn't include mixing or it wouldn't include editing or it would only include this amount of time to track. So there are all these things you can do to trade off. And let me just repeat it one more time. I would really highly recommend that when you're negotiating with a client, if they ask for a lower price, that you do a trade off 100% of the time. In my experience, it tends to curse a project if you don't. Yeah. Like I said, it's going to be the, give a mouse a cookie. I'll ask for a glass of milk. Yeah. And that basically just says, if you go down on price without a trade-off, then they're just going to keep asking for more and more and more. How far can they push you? Yeah. Is what's going to happen. And you can't make great art that way. About once a year, I agree to negotiate on price for a mastering project because I forgot that every time it's a nightmare. And what will happen is the client, they'll nickel and dime me because they're looking for a no. They're trying to bracket. 
they might not even realize it, but they're trying to see what that limit is. And until they get that no, they, they're going to keep pushing you until they hit that wall or until you get burnt out. Exactly. So for many of us, especially younger guys, I did not get this as a younger man. Um, we think we're bending over backwards for a client by continuing to say yes and yes and yes. That's driving the client nuts because they see it as a negotiation, whether they recognize it or not. And they're going to continue to ask until they meet up on a boundary. And so all of a sudden you go from bending over backwards to bending over forwards. <laughs> oh, geez. So you got to know people and especially musicians need boundaries. And if you're going to run a good business, you have to offer them those boundaries by offering them trade-offs when they try to negotiate. Let's move on to the next gambit now. The next gambit on our list is what, Chris? The higher power gambit. So what does that mean? So you're 14 years old. You want to borrow the car from dad tonight. And dad says, I'll pray about it. Is that what he says? <laughs> <laughs> well, he could. But what he probably will say was, well, let me talk to your mother. Oh, yeah. The higher power. That's an appeal to a higher power. And so he can get away from being the bad guy by saying, no, your mother said no. Exactly. Exactly. And this is a really useful gambit when you are buying a car. When you walk in to buy a car, negotiate, negotiate, negotiate. And then at the end say, hmm. I'm going to have to run this by my wife or I'm going to have to run this by my dad. And they use it on you all the time, by the way. That is a thing they're trained to do. Let me run this by my manager. All the time. It's like their favorite move ever. So it's, it's literally like a textbook negotiating move. So this appeal to a higher power can be really, really valuable because the salesman, when he's selling you a car or whatever, he wants to walk out with the sale. He doesn't want you to leave before he has that sale because he knows as soon as you are out that door, he has way less leverage. So that appeal to a higher power is really powerful because one, it gives you time to think or two, you might get a crazy good offer just by saying, I got to run this by my wife. Often what they'll say in a used car situation is, well, what would the price need to be for you to not have to run it by your wife? They want to know how much are you authorized to negotiate for? They're bracketing when they do that. They want to know what's the high low on this price. Super powerful stuff. So that higher power is really interesting. And I'm sure many of you have seen it with bands. You're negotiating. You think the guy you're negotiating with has the authority of the whole band. And then all of a sudden, he has to clear it with the singer. And, ah, shoot, this is awkward now because we were negotiating and I seem to believe that you had the power to make a deal, but it turns out you don't. And it really affects the dynamics of a negotiation. Okay, so we got higher power. And what, what would the situation be if you're your own business owner, right? You're the business guy and you're negotiating something, what could the higher power be without it going to the unethical land? I'm going to have to talk to my business partner about this. If you have one, yeah. If you have one. Here's the thing. If you're married, you do have a business partner. It's your spouse. Yep. You also could say something about a mentor. I need to talk to my mentor about this. Yeah. Talk to your mentor. You could say... Uncertain deals. It would make sense on, clearly on the average project negotiation. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. If you have another band that you're talking to as well, you could say, well there's another band that I, I had offered that time slot to. Uh, let me talk to them first. Yep. And this skill doesn't, I mean, I'm trying to bring it back home to the recording studio world, but this is something you're going to use all over in every type of thing that you do. Negotiation is, is a skill you need in your life, not just in your business. So, you know, I want you guys to take this and run with it outside of the studio world. So I'm trying to keep this relevant, but you can't always use relevant situations when you're talking about negotiation. Well, let me make all of these situations relevant. If you are trying to quit your job or trying to not have to get a job and you're trying to do audio full time, we've talked about this before on the podcast, you have a runway. A runway is the length of time that your business can run while making no money before you have to quit and go back to having a real job. So when you're trying to run a business like this, an awful lot of it is extending your runway. And you can extend your runway dramatically if you are a good negotiator because you can affect your fixed cost. It's true. Your rent, your car payment, even your cell phone bill, you can by and large affect with good negotiation. People don't realize this. You can negotiate your rent, <laughs> especially if you're willing to do a trade-off like a multiple year lease. Uh, another way you can do this is negotiating your cable bill. That's one of the most notoriously easy negotiations you can do. You can be on the phone for 30 minutes right now with your local cable provider and negotiate your bill down by $30 a month. Yeah. So let's say you have a full-time job, you're considering going full-time audio, or you have multiple gigs and you're thinking about dropping one of them. Say you're a barista and you're also producing and you want to stop being a barista. 
if you can negotiate in your life and lower your fixed expenses, it makes it a lot easier to make that jump. And it's really not a ton of effort. Um, I highly recommend this book, Secrets of Power Negotiating by Roger Dawson, or really, you know, any book on negotiation. This is something that you should be thinking about, and it's a big part of success. And honestly, the real sad thing here is we look at our industry and we look at the huge number of people who have made an enormous dent on our society, whether uh, they mixed a great record or they played bass on a really great record or they were the artist. And we are notorious for cutting bad deals and then it blowing up on our face. So this is something that the difference between success and not success is very often basic negotiating skills. Yep. And having a little bit of backbone behind those negotiation skills. Slash, I mean, when I say backbone, it's really just confidence. Yeah. So now let's bring this back. We still have more of these to go. That felt like the podcast outro there, Chris. It was not the outro of the podcast. We still have more of these negotiation tactics here. But what is the next one on our list here? This is my favorite one. It is the most powerful of all negotiating gambits. And it is your back. My, my back? Your back. When you are negotiating with somebody, the most powerful move you have at your disposal is to turn around and walk away. Ooh. Absolutely the most powerful thing that you can do. So let's say you're buying a car because this is the easiest illustration to use or you're negotiating rent to open a bigger facility or something and you negotiate and say, mm, no thanks. You don't counter. You just say, no thanks. Make it clear that you don't think it's going to work out and you turn around and start to walk away. You do it in a nice way. It's like, you know, I just, I'd love to work with you on this, but this is just not the rate we can go with, or this is not the rent we can go with, or this is not the price we can pay for this car. Yeah. This is out of our budget. You can use some excuse there, but you just are saying no, and then you're leaving. Yeah. When they see you leaving, they know (laughs) you have bracketed. You 100% know what the most money they are willing to spend on this, and it is less than what you have offered. So that back, showing them your back is so powerful because it is a really firm bracket. It is an absolutely not where we go above this. And if you're being truthful and they believe you, there's a pretty good chance that they're going to say, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. And so fun story. When I was 14 years old, I went on a cruise. I've only been on one cruise. I've never been on a cruise and I don't want to go on one. I don't ever want to go on one again. But when I was 14, it was pretty fun. We embarked from Miami. It was me and my cousins and an entire Brazilian girls school which was pretty fun as a 14-year-old. So we pulled up to Nassau in the Bahamas, and I couldn't find my family. So I left, and I walked into the the Nassau market, which is, uh, at the time, I don't know if it still is, very third world, and uh, I would walk up to shop, and uh, he said, whoa, 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 I'll give this to you for 25 cents. And I was like, whoa, I didn't, that was awesome. He just totally, like, cut his price in half. Uh and I thought, I thought this was over. So using your back, it's super powerful. And it, it's not like this is only studio stuff. This will work in third world countries, you know, and people use it all the time. This is a, this, these are cool things. Yeah, I've, I've had the same experience when, you know, negotiating something and then just saying, okay, doesn't work for me. You'll start leave and then all of a sudden they pipe up. Yeah. So this one's going to be pretty quick. Uh, It's very easy. Read the contract. When you're negotiating, read the contract. If someone gives you a contract, read it. And if possible, write it. So this is an important idea in negotiation. Writing the contract, if you can, is a lot better than having to read the contract and being responsible for making sure that nothing snuck by you. And you might think, oh, you have to be a real idiot to do that. Not the case, man. Billionaires sign documents all the time and get stuff snuck over on them. It happened with uh, Chris Saka in uh, Uber. He didn't read a contract and he got totally screwed. And, you know, this is, this guy's on Shark Tank. So read the contract. This is super important. And last gambit, take it or leave it. I have a green Jeep Wrangler. That is the gambit, by the way. Take it or leave it. (laughs) Take it or leave it. Yeah. I have a green Jeep Wrangler. And it's one of my favorite possessions. I love it. I bought it on Craigslist. Yeah, it's lime green, right? No, it's, it is forest, forest <laughs> green, my friend. And I bought it on Craigslist and it was ta- a take it or leave a gambit. I called the guy who had the Jeep and it was gorgeous. It was beautiful. It had nice rims. It was rust free, lowish miles. 
and brand new top. I called the guy up and I said, I've got $6,500. That's the most I can spend. That's all the cash I have. Take it or leave it. He took it. Sold me the Jeep. It was a great deal. So the take it or leave it gambit basically comes down to you say... You're drawing a line in the sand. Yeah. You draw a line in the sand and say, hey, if you can do it for this, that's how much cash I have. That's how much money I have in my bank account. That's how much we have left over from XYZ. Whatever. You say, this is how much money I have. Do you want it? Yes or no. And this is usually preceded by the other gamut we just talked about. That is your back. Yes. That means... If you say, take it or leave it, you better be damn sure you're willing to turn around and walk away, you know, in a nice, respectful way. If they don't take that offer, if you go any lower than that, or you go any higher or whatever way you're negotiating, if you get off of the price that you say is your take it or leave it price, you've just lost your power (laughs) when it comes to negotiation. Yeah. So you could use this in the studio to say to a band, if a band's being tricky when you're negotiating to say, Hey, I have two weeks open at the end of the month. It would cost this much for you guys to be in here during those two weeks. I'm not sure when and if I could get you guys in after that. It's here are the dates. Here is the cost. Do you want it? Yes or no. Yeah. So super powerful stuff. So this is absolutely not exhaustive. There are so many more different gambits and ideas and philosophies, but let me just sort of do a quick refresher on the, first of all, the philosophy. One, don't rip people off. Yeah. Don't win at the cost of someone else losing. Win, win is your job. If you can find a win for somebody else, you can probably find a win for yourself. More importantly, if you develop a reputation as somebody who crafts win, win arrangements, you will get deals all the time, all the time. So that is really, really, really important. The next thing is that you'll never make more per hour than you do negotiating. So it's a skill worth having. It's an easy skill to learn. I've read one book on it and I'm decent at it. You will never make more than you do per hour because one sentence and an awkward pause can often be enough to make you well over $1,000 per hour. It's true. In many cases, well over $10,000 per hour. Crazy stuff. So yeah, I would say those two things, win-win and recognize that you'll never make more per hour than you will negotiating. And uh, I'll just kind of run through these real quick. Number one, try to get the person that you're negotiating with to negotiate against themselves. Number two, ask for more than you're comfortable or for less than you're comfortable asking. Push your your comfort zone there. Number three, never say yes to the first offer. You're trying to bracket. You're trying to figure out what's the most that they will spend and what's the least that I'll sell for or vice versa. Number four, the fun one, uh, the flinch. (laughs) Super duper effective, not to be underestimated. Number five, avoid confrontation. When you're negotiating, you are trying to find a mutually beneficial arrangement, not I win, you lose, ha, ha, ha. That's awful. And it will eventually come back and bite you in the butt 99% of the time. Anyways, so avoid confrontation. Reluctance. Number six is reluctance. Reluctance is super powerful. If you're trying to buy something and it's not exactly what you want, make sure the other party knows and ask for a discount because it's not exactly what you want. Seven, trade-offs. If you are going to lower your price, there needs to be a trade-off. You have a reason why. Yes. Uh, Don't forget that one. Man, of all the ones I can recommend to you guys, that's probably the most important because if you don't do that well, it will ruin your life and your career because you will only, instead of doing art for a living, you will negotiate for a living and you will be nickeled and dimed for a living and it's terrible. Number eight is an appeal to a higher power. If you're in a negotiation and you just you want someone else's advice or you don't want to you don't want to finish it right then, just say, "Hey, I need to go consult my crystal eight ball." Yeah, honestly, even I need to sleep on this. Ooh, that's a, that is actually a good one. I just need to think about it. Yeah, and then number nine, the most powerful of all the strategies that we have spoken about is your back. Just be willing to turn around, yes. and walk away if it comes down to that in the negotiation. Yeah, I think most people, when they get in negotiation, they feel like they have to reach a resolution where they walk away with something. If you want a better deal on a car, go to more than one dealership and practice showing your back to the guy that you're working with. If you want a good space for your studio, look at more than one space and let them know, "Ah, I'm talking to this other guy. Ah, I don't think I can afford that. Walk away. And often... That's enough to get a better deal on the spot. They'll often negotiate against themselves just because 
you were willing to put your foot down and say, no, I got to go. See ya. So, uh, number 10, read the contract. I know it sounds so simple. It sounds so boring. If it's in writing, it's legally binding. So by and large, so you want to read the contract. Don't ever sign something you haven't read. And then number 11, take it or leave it. It's a really, really easy one. That's probably the easiest one to execute. Just walk into a shop where you want to buy something or um, talk to a band and say, hey, this is what I got. This is how much it would cost. Take it or leave it. All right, so that wraps up the 11. We had 11 there, 11 negotiation tactics. Chris, did you have the unethical ones that you mentioned at the beginning of this episode? Oh, man, yeah. So the unethical ones, like I mentioned before, I had a friend that was just absolutely... Friend is a strong term for him. Person that you were forced to be around. Yes, person I was forced to be around. And this gentleman I was spending a lot of time with while reading this book, and I got to the section on unethical gambits. As far as unethical gambits go, the one that I fell for the most, no more do I fall for it, but the one that I fell for the most was a foot-in-the-door technique, is what I'd call it. Is They would say, hey, um, but in an unethical way, they'd say, hey, if you do this for us, this is what we'll do for you next year. Or, you know, we'll circle back in six months and this is what this is what we promise to do for you. You see this in day jobs all the time. All the time. People will say, hey, you stick around till next quarter, we'll give you that raise. You stick around till next year, we'll give you that raise or we'll give you that bonus or whatever. And a lot of times it never comes. It never happens. It's always next year. It's always next year. Yeah. So, man, I've had this happen a number of times to me where someone has made a promise to recruit me to their cause and then not kept it. And that's an unethical negotiation strategy to say, hey man, if you record with us, we're gonna record real drums in a really big room with 25 foot ceilings. And then all of a sudden it's electric drums um, in the bathroom. That's where you get to the over-promising, under-delivering. Yeah, dude. That's why that's unethical. Yeah, and it's also something that I feel like us as a community that audio engineers are generally tempted to do. That we're generally tempted to under-deliver, to promise the world and only deliver you know, a fraction of it. So what's another unethical gambit that you can share with us? So another unethical gambit is planted information. There's a a hilarious story about two brothers in New York City a hundred years ago who owned a shop where they would do tailoring. And what they would do is one of them would pretend to be slightly deaf and the deafer of the two would be working with a client and the client would say, how much for this suit? You know, he'd be trying it on and he would say, yelled back to his brother, Hey, Bob, how much for this suit? And Bob would say, $100. And then the guy working with the client would say, what? $90? Uh, $90. And, <laughs> and the customer would be like, yes. And would throw their money down on the table, pick up the package and run out the door. They think they're getting a deal, but it's really, they're just running the gamut on them. Yep. You don't see that one as often, but that's sort of like fake information. You know, it's clearly unethical. Another one that's really dangerous is the deliberate mistake. And I remember one time, uh, one of these friends that screwed me over would say, oh man, you know, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. When in fact he did, it was planned all along, which came to light later. So this pretending that something was a mistake, man, it's a particularly devious negotiation tactic. Yeah. It's like when you sell someone something and it turns out to be a fake or a knockoff, or it didn't include something that clearly should have come with it. Yeah. And they try to pretend that it was on accident because they were just trying to get one by you. Yeah. Or the band owes you money on the 30th and it's 15 days later and you call them up and they're like, oh man, I'm sorry. I totally forgot. My bad. Probably didn't forget. Yeah. They might have, but that's what makes it so devious is you don't know if they forgot or not. It's a completely plausible explanation. And A lot of people, believe it or not, unethical negotiators will do that on purpose. They'll pretend to make a mistake. And because they've revealed they've been vulnerable with you that they made a mistake, it's so much more believable when in fact it was completely intentional. All right. So share one more with us of these unethical uh, things and we'll wrap this podcast up. Well, this is one that we have seen um, many times in Washington and it's the uh, I do not recall. It's faking bad memory. A lot of times what unethical people will do and what I've been the victim of many a time is coming to a deal with somebody and not writing it down. Ooh, this is a big one I've seen in the studio world where the final balance is agreed upon and all of a sudden there's a dispute when the the time comes to, for them to pay you money. Yeah. And all of a sudden, if you didn't put it in writing, Ooh, yeah, you're screwed. You're relying on memory. 
and unethical people will intentionally say, oh, I don't, I don't remember you saying that. You know, I don't remember you saying that it didn't include editing. I don't remember you saying that mastering wasn't included. Yeah. And whether that's true or not, if you didn't get it in writing, you've just damaged the relationship. Yeah. And honestly, if you're in a situation like that, I think the ethical thing to do is to say, okay, and to do it, to add that extra service because you got to be above reproach. Your reputation's much more valuable than that project. And it's on you at that point because you didn't put it in writing. Yeah, exactly. So if you could go back and, and say, when you negotiate, write it down, even if it's just bullet points, even if it's just pen on a napkin, write it down so that there's no miscommunications, nothing relies on a human being's memory, and maybe not most importantly, but most scarily, most terrifyingly, um, so that the person, if they're unethical, doesn't pull the, oh, I don't, I don't remember you saying that, or well, I thought, I remember you said this, you're like, what the heck? I never said that. And so when you're negotiating, even if you do a great job, you can still get totally screwed by an unethical negotiator if you didn't write it down just by him saying, I don't remember that. And then it's your word against his and your reputation's on the line. And man, you see this in Washington all the time. Somebody will get asked a really pointed question. I do not recall, you know, is a totally defensible answer. Who knows if he remembers or not? And so this is an important thing. Don't, don't forget to write it down. I think we all came away with something in this episode. I definitely, I feel like I learned a lot this episode because I've never really intensely studied negotiation other than what I've just learned from trial and error in my past. I think this will relate to all different areas of life, not just your studio, but it definitely will carry over to your studio. Chris, any parting words here when it comes to negotiation? Yeah, I would just kind of underscore and highlight the thing we talked about earlier about a lot of this game, this audio for a living has to do with the ability to stay in business or to make the jump to full time and negotiating skills. They're helpful. They're very, very helpful um, in the studio. They're very, very helpful in business, but honestly, they might be more helpful in your personal life as you're figuring out, you know, how, what's your car payment going to be? Which house are you going to live in? Yeah. Because as, as small business owners, our personal finances carry over so closely to our business finances yeah. because you know we're self-employed. We tell you to separate your finances, but at the end of the day, you have expenses and you have income. And if you can't negotiate those expenses down or negotiate something you're selling to get more for it, it does ultimately affect your business. I would like to leave with one small challenge here to our listeners. I would love for you to try to negotiate something. The next dealing you have, whether you're buying a piece of gear or you're selling something, or if you just want to call your cable provider or your cell phone provider and try to negotiate something down, try to negotiate, post it in the Six Figure Home Studio community. Let us know what your results are. We'd love to kind of see what you're doing with that. Whoa.